Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your questions and takes about tennis and other things. About 24 hours ago, I posted in the YouTube community tab, and over 60 of you left your comments. Very excited to get into this. I just uh, finished watching Nadal's first match in Rome against Pablo Carrena Busta, and like, oh my god, I mean, I just feel bad. I mean, Whoever drew Nadal in first round in Rome was just, that's terrible. I, I, I tweeted just now, you can follow me on Twitter, at Gil Gross, uh, playing Nadal after months of training on clay and pent-up competitive energy, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. And Nadal won one and one pair of breadsticks. Tough. I mean, PCB was probably jet-lagged, and then he has to deal with that. He didn't deserve that. All right. Uh, one more thing before I get to your comments. Quick corrections. Not really corrections. Follow-up, though. Monday match analysis on Team Zverev in the U.S. Open final is live. One thing that I really hammered home is that Team went after his forehand and Zverev didn't go after his first serve. And... Something that was correctly pointed out was that I really didn't give any mention of what Zverev said in the post-match press conference, which is that he was cramping in the fifth set tiebreak. Now, while it is true that, um, first of all, I should have said that. So, yeah, that's that, that's that's my mistake. I'll I'll take the the ownership there for an unforced error that I should have uh, brought that up, and I missed that, but. I mean, the first time I realized that there was a problem was actually with Zverev. What was he? Was he up a break at at two one? Anyway, it was a fifteen forty point on break point in the fifth set. I forget if if Zverev was up a break at this point or if I know that that they traded breaks at the beginning of fifth set. But anyway, it was fifteen forty, and Zverev hit the first serve one hundred eight on break point at 15:40 in the 5th. That was like the third game of the set. It was like one all or or 2-1. So, was he cramping at that point? I don't think so. Anyway, uh the point somewhat stands that regardless of what was going on physically, I think a big key down the stretch there was that Zverev didn't have his one of his most important weapons and team continued to at least attempt to hit his. So I just wanted to, to iron that out. Let us get to the comments. And the first one, the most liked comment, the order sometimes gets a little wacky. It's from Team Groves. Do you think do you think Novak is more of a threat to Nadal this clay season after this after his incident? I feel like he may be even more motivated. Also, same idea, but with Tsitsipas and his choke. So two very different situations here. Tsitsipas versus Djokovic. Uh, my my thoughts on Novak is that what happened at the U.S. Open is going to have very little effect on him moving forward. I just don't really see... I, I think he's going to be able to compartmentalize it and put it behind him. And... It has nothing to do with, with tennis. It, it was a freak accident. And I think that the biggest consequence for Novak's mistake was that he lost the opportunity at winning the 2020 U.S. Open. But as I said, immediately after it happened, or at least in the video I made after it happened, I believe the consequences end there. I don't think that there is going to be this lingering effect from this incident. The Tsitsipas thing is another story because that's when the, that's where you could have a lot of a lot of real scar tissue when something like that happens. I don't think that Tsitsipas will use losing six match points to Chorich as motivation and play better. I think what's very important as a tennis player is that you have belief in yourself and that that belief does not waver. When that belief wavers, that's where you will play your tightest. That's where pressure and stress will get to you in its in its most potent form. 
So I'll make a comparison to the U.S. Open final. Dominic Team, he spoke with with John Wertheim, which was I was delighted to see that that conversation took place. And I, I do recommend that um, if you are a podcast listener, first I recommend that you subscribe to Monday Match Analysis on your favorite podcast platform and, and rate and review on Apple. But second, I recommend that you uh, listen to John Wertheim's discussion with Dominic Team uh, because Team speaks about how uh, his experience, quote unquote, in major finals was a disadvantage. That his experience was not good because he was 0-3 and that weighed on his mind and that kind of took a cut out of the inner belief that Dominic Team would have hoped to have playing Alexander Zverev in this final. So in order to play well and play confidently, you need to have a belief. But that belief comes from two things. Hard work, training, um, and positive results. Let's be real. Positive results. It only can come from two things. The work that you put in and positive results that you have. When you have positive results and you've put in all the work, that's the perfect concoction for a tennis player to play confident tennis under pressure. So for Tsitsipas, I'm actually concerned about how long that crushing defeat at the U.S. Open lingers. Hopefully not very long. Hopefully he can put it behind him. Next one. What are your thoughts on the one-hander still being alive and well in the men's game? For a while, it looked like it was going uh, the way of the dinosaur, but it seems it but it seems to have had a resurgence in recent years. A lot of comments about this. Everyone's very interested in this. So so great comment there. Here's why the one-handed backhand isn't going anywhere. Because the modern game is a lot about ground strokes. I'm not breaking any I'm not breaking any uh crazy news there. A lot about ground strokes. We've seen court position become deeper and deeper as modern racket technology, modern string technology, and I would say in in some ways the increased fitness and strength of the players as as all of that has evolved. We've seen players able to hit the ball bigger and bigger from the ground, or I, I should say off the ground. And the biggest backhands in the game will continue to be one-handed backhands. That's why the one-handed backhand isn't going anywhere. Now, stability, defense, return. These are the three areas where we have continued to see the two-handed backhand harbor an advantage. Return, it's more stable. You can keep it shorter. Uh, defensively, it's just, uh, again, it's, it's a lot about control and stability. But we continue to see the players who can defend on the backhand side. They are two-handers. Think Djokovic. Think Murray. Um, but the one-handed backhand will continue to be alive and well because... Dominic Team and Stan Wawrinka, those kinds of backhands will always have a place in the game. So those are my thoughts. Extra, extra topspin, extra heaviness. The one-hander, you know, because you have more, I don't really know the physics behind it, but... But there's a reason, you know, you, when you when you have one limb that gets to swing swing freely, when when it's about one joint and the shoulder, instead of kind of having two limbs along for the ride, it just enables more um, more room for acceleration. Hey, yo, what are your thoughts on tennis commentators? Would you rather watch tennis with or without commentary? I personally enjoy some of the commentators' analysis, really like Patrick McEnroe and Jason Goodall, but a lot of the time they can be a little biased or just make obvious remarks uh, or bring up irrelevant information. 
Since you know so much, I was wondering if you'd prefer to make your own judgment call on what's ha on what's happening. Uh, sure. Obvious commentary can annoy me. Commentary I disagree with can frustrate me. But at the end of the day, I still enjoy watching tennis with commentary as opposed to not having commentary. And it's actually helpful for me to begin that that dialogue in my head. What are they saying? Do I agree with it? What could I add to it? What uh, What is missing? Or is it just spot on? And do I want to, you know, am I just really thankful that they said that? Because I agree and it's a good point, which happens all the time. So I definitely prefer commentary. One, one uh, thing that also is an advantage of commentary, any play-by-play -play broadcaster should be able to elevate the importance of big moments. So if, for example, I'm not paying full attention, let's say I'm distracted by something or I'm kind of, I'm half watching, the commentary should always alert me to any big moment. And that's very important that, that they should always, any play-by-play commentator will say, okay, big opening here. And let's say I'm reading Twitter or something and I'm distracted. Those kinds of words will get me to, okay, look up, lock in. So that's very important. Of course, if we're talking about like a U.S. Open final, I'm totally locked in um, the entire time. Next comment from Clarissa. Uh, what do you think about Novak's chances at Roland Garros this year, especially after the U.S. Open incident? What can you tell about his motivation? Let's say he's healthy and in form. We know the second most important thing is his motivation, especially when Novak is in question. Nadal doesn't have much play in his legs. Team will not play Rome, and it's yet to be seen how he will react after his first major win. To me, it looks like Djokovic is in the best position of the three. Do you agree or disagree? Let's see. There's some replies here. Uh, well, first of all, I I don't really want to pick Roland Garros right now. It's not it's not really what I'd like to gather more information. In terms of motivation, I, I don't. I think it's kind of neutral. I don't think that there's any. I don't think that there's more motivation or less motivation than you know any given year. For Djokovic, there's no chance for like a career slam or or anything like that. Um, I do take issue with Nadal doesn't have much play in his legs because we do see his movement become a, you know a factor generally, especially when he when he switches to clay, he just starts to move better, he moves better on clay than he does on hard court. So I do think his his defense kind of comes into the fold more. Uh, enters the picture, but I still feel that when you take away, when you take away the advantages that Djokovic has on serve and on return, on clay, and when Nadal's forehand is is really firing at its best, and tactically Nadal can can do things to avoid. I don't want to. I don't want to get in this rabbit hole again. But I do favor Nadal right now. I think Nadal tactically knows what he must do against Djokovic. And Nadal at his best, Djokovic at, its be at his best, I still do favor Nadal. How do you think the lower temperatures at this year's French Open affect Nadal's chances of lifting the trophy once more? Lower temperatures generally means less lively, a little bit lower bouncing, not great for Nadal. He wants that ball to, to hop up, but I, I, haven't, I haven't really seen that really play out. Ultimately, Nadal has been fine uh, regardless of the conditions. It, it is a big factor, though. It is a factor against someone who can really challenge him like Djokovic if Nadal can't get the ball above the level of the shoulders when he hits his his down the line uh, loopy backhand 
or if he hits his cross court forehand, it it definitely hurts him. But it we're talking about fractions here. We're talking about fractional differences. At the end of the day, clay will still be a high bouncing surface. Hey Gil, last time um, you last time I asked this, you said I answered this time. Are you still loving your job on YouTube? Is your YouTube career profitable enough to sustain your style of living for years to come? Do you work another job? How long do you see yourself being an analyst on YouTube? Yeah, I, I still do love this. The, the first question and the second question go hand in hand. I do not do this for money, folks. I do not. So I do love it. I do it because I love it. I actually don't think that there is anyone who talks about tennis on YouTube who makes enough money to support themselves. And I don't, I, I feel comfortable saying that because I think I have a decent idea of the landscape of this genre and this market on YouTube. And I just don't think anyone gets enough views to support themselves. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't, I don't think that, I don't think that exists. YouTube is a lot about market and tennis has a pretty good market. But think about this. I'm getting, I'm, I'm really getting off topic here, but think about this. If you look at something like makeup tutorials, or if you look at something like technology reviews, think about all the people who are interested in putting on makeup. I mean, you know, it's like a strong, a strong portion of half the world, right? I get. I mean, I guess you know some men will will wear makeup as well, but more women. Um, if you think about someone who is interested in technology, it's literally almost everyone in the world. So that's where you see more YouTubers or gaming. Okay, here's the thing about gaming: you cannot turn on your television really and find gaming. It's only on YouTube. So. That's, you know, there, there are bigger markets. They're bigger than tennis commentary. So within the tennis commentary market on YouTube, I actually don't think it's quite large enough to really make money, uh, enough money to um, support on your own. Now, it can be done. I just don't think it is being done right now. I do work another job. I do this part-time. And when it comes to the time that I'm actually like, working. Let's say I continue. Let's say I consider this work. YouTube is only like 10 to 20% of the time I put in working. Um, I'm a, I'm a radio play-by-play -play broadcaster, a television host, a radio talk show host in, uh, in Syracuse. And I cover, uh, Syracuse basketball, Syracuse football, um, and some, some other stuff. So, so that's what I do. That's what I spend most of my time doing. Uh, so let's say I was able to focus fully on YouTube. Well, then I could do daily content. Then I could watch way more tennis. Then I could make way more videos. And then I actually think I could make close to a living. I think, look, one day that could happen. I could decide to do that. It's, it's very much in the realm of possibility, but um, we'll see what happens. I, the answer is I'm, I'm young. My, my career is extremely young and it's going to go other places. It's not going to stay like this. It's not going to stay here. That's just an, uh, it's an a hundred percent guarantee that there are going to be changes. They will come. Um, I, I don't see myself really ever turning my back on this, um, Unless I can give you something better than this, that's that's the only way. Um, so yeah, look, I'm I'm glad for, for everyone who's with me on this journey. I'm I'm appreciative uh, appreciative of it. Um, all the only thing that's guaranteed is things will change, and I think that it will be in the benefit of the viewers. Will Rafa regret not playing at the U.S. Open and potentially and potentially winning his 20th Grand Slam title and tying Federer? Um, 
the rest of this comment is, let's face it, with Novak being DQ'd, Rafa would have won. He could now be going uh, into the French, looking at winning number 21. I don't think... Rafa knew that this was a possibility, right? It's not like he didn't play the U.S. Open because Djokovic... Like, keep in mind, he made the decision before Djokovic made his decision. So, Djokovic strongly considered not traveling to New York, not playing the tournament in the first place. Nadal wouldn't have gone in that case, right? The decision was already made. I really don't think Nadal has serious regrets here. Otherwise, I think he knows himself well enough where if he... he This was not a competitive decision. That That's, that's the point I want to make. This was clearly a life decision. Rafa Nadal did not want to go to New York, not because of the the major title race, not because he didn't think he could win. He made that decision for himself as a human, clearly. So I don't think he would have, I don't think he has kind of any kind of regrets, honestly. I think he's at peace. I'm sure he felt a certain way about not playing when he's healthy. I'm sure it might have been hard for him to watch. But regret? That's too strong a word. I don't think Nadal, I think Nadal would do it all over again. Do you think team would have a chance at beating Nadal at Roland Garros if they fa- Roland Garros if they faced? Yeah, um I think team is at the point now where I don't think you can ever say he has no chance. Like he's way too good a player to say that he has no chance. I would need to collect more data before I say who I favor, but we all saw over the U.S. Open, like, for example, when when Medvedev played team, it was very hard to know who was was going to come through that match. Um, Dominic team, can, can we say this? Dominic team has reached a level of respect. There's no one on the planet that he can play. On almost any surface, maybe grass is still seems pretty difficult for him. But on almost any surface, you can't say Dominic Team doesn't have a chance. He's he has reached that level. Gil, has your French Open power rankings changed significantly from the one you made back in Feb- February? My memory is not that good. I I totally don't remember. I do remember that I made one, but I totally don't. I'm sure. I'm sure it's different, though, with with what we've seen. Thoughts on Massetti, Lorenzo Massetti, young Italian, uh, Australian Open junior champion. He looks so promising with big weapons at his disposal. He has the X factor that makes tennis exciting. Will go a long way. There's a couple of uh, comments about Massetti in this uh, in this comment section. I got to watch more of him. I've watched a lot of highlights and that's not good enough. Uh, but I love the forehand. He's got a good one-handed backhand. He's got a developed slice backhand as well, but he hits heavy from both wings. I really like the racket acceleration, good strength on the forehand. He's got a good body type, athletic uh, mover. It seems like he's willing to defend, but let's see the odds and ends. Let's see. I gotta. I gotta watch more. Let's see how the serve is. Let's see how the return is. Really hard to see those two things in highlights because do you know what's never in highlights? Service winners, generally, you know, aces, short points, not in highlights. <laughs> um, let's see. Oh, he looks like a willing volleyer too. Just a great shot maker. He looks. He looks tremendously talented. Italian tennis. It almost seems like the future is like Italian tennis, Canadian tennis. Looking very bright, those two countries. You got Sinner, Musetti, FAA, Chapo. Oh, with Russian tennis. Dare I forget Russian tennis with Rublev and Medvedev and Hachinov. They're a little bit older, though. Who has the highest level on all three surfaces outside of the big three? Y'all love this question. Highest level on the surfaces outside of the big three. Team on clay. Fast court. Fast court. 
Uh, quick hardcore, I will go Medvedev. Do I have to do grass? Nobody outside of the big three looks good on grass. Um, like, it's kind of... Let's see. Let me pull up the rankings to, to answer this grass question. Who is good? Who's got the highest level on grass? I'm, you might not like my answer here. Berrettini should have a lot of potential on grass. He hasn't done anything, I don't think. No, yes, he has. He went very far in... Uh, uh, is it Was it Hala? He went very far in, in one of those. He, I think he won the title. I think he beat FAA in the final. Ooh, it might be Berrettini. Definitely not Zverev. Um, he just doesn't commit to his offensive tennis enough on a regular basis. Zverev has the tools, though, to be a good grass court player. Just hasn't really done it. Uh, Tsitsipas, no. Medvedev. I don't. I mean, he should. He should have the game to play to play well on on grass. I almost said glass. How about that glass court tennis? Why isn't that a thing? Ooh, by the way, RBA is a good candidate on fast hard courts as well. He's excellent on fast hard courts. Um, I don't know why I'm saying fast. Just hard court in general. Medvedev on hard court, team on clay, and then grass is just brutal surface. It's really like no one no one seems to be comfortable. I will say Berrettini. Yeah, I expect Berrettini to be by far most troubling at Wimbledon. That's where I expect him. And again, people are kind of sleeping on on Berrettini. And I understand I understand he doesn't have the most like thrilling game to 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 everyone, but he really is a, a handful with his serve, his forehand, his um net rushing and his slice backhand. Let me see how long I've been talking so I know how fast I need to go. Oh, my God. 27 minutes. My goodness. All right. Let's try to go a little bit faster. Um, in the U.S. Open Finals, both players didn't play their best because they weren't forced to play their best by the opponent. In a match against Big 3, the opponent has to play his best to have a chance to win. So, in a way, Big 3 brings out the best out of the opponent. You are 100% correct. I would have... I would put it a little bit differently than you put it. But when people are saying team would have lost in straight sets against Djokovic if he played like that. Yeah, but like that's not saying anything because team wouldn't have played that badly against Djokovic. The whole reason why he why he was so tight, so nervous and so unable to play his game was precisely because he was playing Alexander Zverev. He would not have played that poorly if he was playing Djokovic. So that, when people say that, it's kind of a, it's a, it's a moot point. It really is. But there's also certainly such thing as playing up and playing down. It is, it's difficult to play your best tennis. Some players are really great at it, like Medvedev. That's why he often smokes players. Nadal is really great at it, but it's it's difficult to play your best when your opponent isn't, and it's a lot easier to play your best when your opponent is pushing you to your best, because that's where you feel desperate, that's where you feel uh, it's a little bit easier to focus, and you really know that um, you got to bring your best stuff. All right, the rest of this comment. Also one suge suggestion. Why don't you start live streams? You can invite prominent players, coaches, analysts, I'm just going to uh, skim through this. I have seen YouTube channels on other sports, even chess, grow faster. Tennis is far more popular, and your videos are too good not to grow your channel faster. Live streams. Would you like to... I could do that. During a match, I could live stream during a match. Super chat function. Yeah, and then I could do this chat live as well. I could do this chat live. Maybe I could do this... I could pick a time on Friday. Um, okay, I'll experiment with that. And thank you for the compliment. Team displayed nerves in the U.S. Open final again on the big stage. Do you think finally being a slam champion will help him go a step further and beat the big names at the French? Just in general, it will help him relax because it's a massive weight on your shoulder. You got to understand these guys... 
look, team, when you say team has been training his whole life to win a slam, it's not entirely accurate because when he was 14 years old, he wasn't thinking about winning a slam. But for the last three, four, you know, team said, I, th I think team said that he realized that he can win a slam. I don't think he specified, but I think he realized that he could win um, off clay last fall. Regardless of when it was, there was a certain point where Dominic Team realized that it was his goal to win a Grand Slam. And since then, he lost in three finals. You can't tell me that it won't help him the next time he's there, the fact that he doesn't have that hang over his head. Being 0-3 really hurt him in this final. Even though he didn't, you know, even though it's perfectly excusable... Even though he lost to, to Nadal on clay and Djokovic in Australia, it was still clearly a reason why he was so nervous is the fact that he was 0-3. Now that he's 1-3, he'll feel a lot better. Will fans lose interest in tennis once the big three retire? Will, Ro will Roger, Rafa, and Novak fans still care as much? Here's my answer to this. It's cyclical. Star-driven sport, it's, it's cyclical. Give me one time in tennis history where everyone was bored. Like, isn't that pretty hard to find? Like, has that happened? It kind of hasn't. You know, and I don't have, I don't pretend to be a historian, but I have a decent grasp on tennis history, a pretty decent grasp on it, okay? I know that in the 70s, Jimmy Connors and, and Bjorn Borg really uh, harvested a boom in tennis's popularity. Um, and I know through the 80s, you had Jimmy Connors and John McEnroe and tennis continued to be very popular. And then I know in the 90s, people were getting a little bit fed up with how short the points were and you had your servant volleyers. And I don't know that people, you know, maybe people were a little bit tired of watching like Edberg play Borg and the points were so staccato. But other than that, there were still, you know, Sampras and Agassi. And it seems like the 90s, I mean, the talent and also the different, the differing play styles. I love watching 90s matches. Tremendous. Fantastic. And then Federer comes, comes along not too short after. So when has this happened? So do I think that there's going to be a time? And by the way, in other individual sports, such as MMA, people say the same thing. Or have said the same thing. Now, MMA is a much younger sport than tennis. But everyone's always concerned that when the stars are gone, that no one's going to take its place. These are voids that tend to be filled. Hi, Gil. Technical question. Did you change your one-take video philosophy? It seems to me that there are some cuts in your videos recently, which was not the case two, three months ago. Is it just me? It's not just you. Uh, if not, why the change? I kind of like the idea of one-shot take. Here, here's the honest truth. Um, I felt like I just the team, the team Zverev final. I talked for an hour, and then I I got finished with it, and that was before I put in the the Jeff Salzenstein interview, and I just felt really bad about the video being that long. So I felt like I needed to cut the fat off, you know, and and shave it down a little bit. So, you know, they, I had an aside about Zverev's half volleying and how how impressive his net play was. And I went into more depth on the, the third set and the fourth set. I cut that out and kind of left all the detail in for the fifth set. I just felt like it needed to be shorter. And then I, I know in a mailbag, a similar thing happened. Sometimes I just feel like when it gets too long, I feel like cutting it. Um... It's funny, the whole business model here, business model, right, of, of this channel should not, it's not really supposed to work, but it, it does. But I do feel, I'm sure that there are some people listening and you're thinking, Gil, I don't care how long it is, but I also do think that there are some people who see the time and is like, oh my God, I cannot, I cannot watch this guy talk for 45 minutes, even if I, even if I like him, I, I just don't have that. And it is interesting, something like the mailbag where, 
um, there's not really much visual, right? You do see me talking, which probably helps you keep, uh, stay engaged, but there's not really that much visual. Um, it is interesting that so many more people prefer to watch me on YouTube versus listening in podcast form. It is interesting. I do try to make Monday match analysis a bit more visually interesting. Um, the whole, I will say the whole process of the Zverev, of the Zverev team final, it was the most difficult Monday match analysis I ever tried to put together. Uh, there were, that's why it came out so late. There were things that kept getting in the way, uh, things I had to attend to. It was difficult for me to, you know, I didn't want to take the time to to get the proper visuals. I had to put it in the editing machine. I had to do three. I had to do Jeff Salzenstein. I was a little, oh, I had to rewatch portions of the match because I thought it was so difficult to to wrap my my head around that match. I had a tough time. And honestly, anyone who puts stuff out, whether it be a comic or, you know, any kind of commentary, anyone who, or a writer or an artist, musician, anyone who puts their stuff out into the world, they have things that they feel good about and things that they don't feel good about. And I just did not feel good at all about, about Monday show. And, you know, I got some positive, you know, if, if you loved it, I'm, I'm, I'm glad there's just no avoiding it. It's just sometimes anyone who puts stuff out, sometimes you feel good. Sometimes you don't. All right, let's, let's get through these very fast. If I, if I can, this one's, this one's long. Let's see. Are there any with a lot of likes down here? Let's see. Man, there are a lot that I can't get to. Uh, let's get to in Terry and Terry. He would have been very... Got to answer this. He's asked this uh, a bunch. Um, which is more of a blow-up? Zverev leading 2-0 and a break against team in the U.S. Open final or Federer's two missed match points on his own serve against Djokovic in last year's Wimbledon final? My answer is Federer's. What's yours? Well, I think the level that Federer had... So there's two differences. One... After Federer lost his two match points, I think it's very admirable that he continued to hold serve and play with Djokovic all the way up until 12-all in that fifth set super tiebreak. That's very underrated, and people don't talk about that. Federer deserves a lot of credit for that. After losing double championship point, he did not, you know, he did not collapse. Zverev... You know, for Zverev, it was a very prolonged period of time where he could not play the kind of tennis that, that he did in the first and second set. For that reason, I think that Zverev is is more of a, a blow-up, to use your words. Zverev is more of a blow-up because it lasted for a much longer time. I also think that what Federer did at 30-40 is not a crime. What what Federer did is not a crime. He he played in a an approach shot a little bit too safe, but at least he didn't miss it. Can can we acknowledge that? Can we acknowledge that that's better than missing it? Um. So that's kind of that's kind of the answer. My memory is eroded of what happened on the next two points there from Deuce. I know that I know that Djokovic played some really good returns to eventually get that break. And I don't think Federer made his first serves. All right, here we go. Do you think next gen's quality of play will ever reach the legendary heights of the big three? Well, I do think it's important to note that tennis has constantly evolved. So we like to use plop theory. Okay, plop theory is where we say if you took John McEnroe and or if, let's say if you took sure, if you took John McEnroe and you plopped him in the 2020 US Open final, how would he do? The answer is always he would lose. That is always the answer to these questions. But plop theory is very silly because in all sports it it just doesn't work. It's it's not a good it's not a good thing to discuss. 
So I'm assuming you're not talking about that. Because if you're talking about plop theory, I, I bet the play will actually be better than the big three. But that's just because the sport evolves. Maybe not next gen, because the sport might not evolve that much that quickly. But uh, the answer... The answer is, is for the most part, no. There are still some players who might be able to reach the heights. In fact, I think there's a comment in here, or maybe someone tweeted it at me. Someone said, I don't think that there is any... Oh, here it is. 13 Wolves. 10 likes on this comment. For some reason, it wasn't at the top. Agree or disagree, there is no player on tour right now that will win 10 or more Grand Slams in their career, excluding the big three. I, I think that might be true. There are some players where I would put on a too early to tell label, but well, the thing is with the big three, it is very, very difficult to, like they have weaknesses, but they're almost quasi weaknesses. They're not real weaknesses. You know, from the Federer backhand to the Nadal serve to the uh, Novak Djokovic's I'll say uh, offensive firepower. These weaknesses are f not real weaknesses. They are just parts of the game that are not as strong relative to the rest of their superlative games, right? When it comes to the next gen, they have more real actual weaknesses. The Medvedev forehand, the Tsitsipas backhand and his ability to play under pressure. The Zverev second serve, Zverev's um, inconsistencies on his forehand. These are like legitimate weaknesses that I would say like Pete Sampras. I would say, um, you know, even like a Pete Sampras, what, what was his weakness? The backhand? It's not a real weakness. It's, it's not. It's, it's, it was a good backhand. He, he was pretty good. It just wasn't as good as the rest of the things that he did. So that's why I, I kind of agree with this take that no one will win more than... It's possible that no one on tour will win 10 or more Grand Slams. Too early to tell. A player like Sinner, who if he, if he can be an elite athlete, if his movement ever becomes elite, ooh, watch out. I just don't know if that'll ever happen. Um, a player... Like Felix, can he become consistent? Can he become as great a defensive player as his athleticism should allow him to become? Right now, he's just, he's not great on defense, even though he's this incredible athlete, which doesn't make much sense, but that's just the reality of it. And then, and then also, um, his serve needs to get better. Um, and then, you know, there, there are just some play. Oh, Al Alcaraz and. I will throw in Musetti since he just had his first ATP win, but let's throw him in. He's he's really an Alcaraz type. We, we, we really don't know who he is. But next gen, 20 and above, kind of the non-teenagers. Um, and I should stop excluding Shapovalov in these discussions. Um, I should stop, you know, with, with Shapovalov, it's... It's defense, it's consistency, but I really think Chapeau, man, I'm really impressed. And I think that I need to start putting him in these discussions. Um, Rublev is just, um, you know, none of these guys seem like 10 slam winners. Demonor, no, none of them seem like 10 slam winners. But it's so hard. I mean, Andre Agassi, Boris Becker, Andy Murray. Murray's a special case because he's just better than the number of slams he's won. So I agree with that take. Very good. Um, I'm going to shorten these questions. What do you think about parents as coaches well past the junior level guild? Don't these players have to cut loose from the child position um, and be enabled to firstly grow up independent, but secondly to learn to uh, separate personal from professional? Skepticism is the word. I think these relationships, I meet these relationships with skepticism. Not, you know, it's impossible to entirely reject them. Um, but I have serious doubts about, and look, I, I think that at times the Tsitsipas 
Apostolos relationship turbulent. Zverev, his relationship with his father. Now I I think, now I'll say it again, turbulent. They like to have another coach on board, which is smart. Uh, Shapo seems pretty stable with his mother, but I believe that I am skeptical. I'm 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 skeptical of these relationships. They can work, but I think it's uh. I don't want to say not advisable, but the there there is a potential for that to be in the way. Also, because you should always you should never feel like like you can't cut ties with someone in your corner, or that you have to listen to someone. You also need full respect. There are so many extra layers, right? First of all, how do you fire your father or your mother? You you can't. How do you say, look, I need to listen to someone else. I need someone else. You can't. How do you say, or, or do you fully respect them? Are they actually getting to you? Maybe the things they're saying are correct, but are they tough enough? And do they have enough weight? Um, do their words carry enough as, you know, for, for you to fully respect that and listen to them? Or are you saying... Ugh, Dad, can you shut up already? I've heard this a million times. I, I don't want to hear it. So I, I just think that there are issues with, with that dynamic. There are two questions on parent coaching. So um, very good, very good. Let's see. Who do you take out of these four to win? Prime Andy Murray, Prime Delpo, Prime Vavrinka, or Prime Team? The reason I specify who would win is obviously because Murray has had the best uh, accomplishment-wise. Well, what surface? I don't think we've really seen Prime Team yet, by the way. I would say Prime Murray, though. Prime Murray was a huge problem. Huge problem. Made it so difficult. Um, made it so difficult to uh, on his opponents to to win. So I, I think Prime Prime Murray. Expectations for Vavrinka Roland Garros, not very high at the moment. He needs to put together some better results. Djokovic, Nadal, hypothetical final in Rome. Who wins? I'll say Djokovic. Who's your favorite player? He retired. It was David Ferrer. Your take on team's chances of winning the French Open? I think the first week... Once he gets through the first week, I think it, it shouldn't be too much of a problem. I think he's dangerous as always. Fatigue? Maybe. I'm not quite sure. I, I think it's good that he's not playing. Sasha plays better with less distraction and no crowd? N not fair to say. We have to remember, he made the final. He didn't play anyone in the top 25. So let's not, let's not say, okay, let's not take the U.S. Open conditions and say that's why he made the final. I think he made the final because his forehand was uh, was really great, and I think Ferrer has just literally beaten it into his head. Flatten out your forehand, flatten out your forehand, crush your forehand, crush your forehand, and he's done it in this tournament for the most part. Especially when he uh, when nerves didn't get in the way of that, so I think that's why he went deep. And also, let's be real, his draw. How do you think you benefit most from no crowd in tennis? If you're good at creating your own energy, and so so that kind of, I think players who are prone to losing focus, getting negative, uh, letting their mind wander, no crowd is bad for them. So if you are not that player, um, that's good. Or if you're a player who, um, if you're a player who maybe gets nervous a little bit more easily when you play in front of a big crowd. Um, that might be also something. Will Rude ever win the French Open? I don't think so. Although he, he is very good on clay. He'll be a top 10 clay quarter. Um, sometimes, let's end on this, I think. Let's end on this one. Or are there two more? No, no, two more. Um... What would be a realistic expectation for Andy Murray in the next 12 months in terms of progress at slams? I'm, I'm just, I don't see him. 
I don't know. I, I don't love Murray at slams right now because I just think that he doesn't have the endurance to to play best of five for two weeks. I really like him. Let, let's see what he can do in best of three first for for one week. And and then let's go from there. So I don't think, especially on Clay, I don't I have very low expectations for Murray at the French. Um, all right, and uh, you sometimes speak so highly of Andre Rublev. Uh, you must be seeing something I fail to see. I see a fit guy with great shots and a lot of power, but I also see someone who does not have a clue what to do when things aren't going his way. He will simply try to hit harder and harder no matter what. Um, in that way, he is almost the antithesis of Mats Vilander, who loved to try and figure out how to beat his opponents. I... I don't think it's actually a matter of what's in his brain. I think it's more a matter of what tools he has. I also will will point to the uh, the Dan Evans match in in Cincinnati, where I do think that he showed me more tactical guile than I've ever seen from him. So first of all, I'm glad you acknowledge that he does have great ground strokes and great movement. That's the basis. That's the foundation of the modern tennis player. And he's got a good return. Um, like, that's the foundation. So that's why I that's why I think Andre Rublev is tremendous. What he needs to develop is some of the auxiliary tools that will allow him to think the game and figure out his opponent. Let's take an opponent like Medvedev, for example. He knows, and by the way, I do think that in the first set, he tried to do things tactically against Medvedev. He knows that um, that hitting hard ground strokes, letting Medvedev counterattack is not a good game plan, and it's better to hit a lot of off-pace, to use a lot of variety, to come to net, to serve out wide, to sometimes serve in volley. He knows that. He just doesn't have the tools. He has an underdeveloped slice backhand. In fact, he, he barely has a slice backhand. His volleys are improving, but he his volleys aren't very good. He doesn't hit those short angle shots very well unless it's the inside-out forehand. Um, he doesn't generally like to, to hit tons of loop on the ball, right, and do those little things that are kind of, I'll call them micro-variations. Um... He doesn't hit every serve in the book. So it's really about adding tools. I don't, but I don't know that it's, it's really in his brain. I don't think he's like tactically stupid. I think he just doesn't have every shot um, to play with. He doesn't have every shot in the book. His toolkit needs to be developed, but I think he'll develop that toolkit. And the important thing, the reason I'm, I'm so high on Rublev is Let's be real. Most of tennis does not is not. Um, most of tennis is played with movement and ground strokes, and Rublev has great movement and great ground strokes, and that's why I think he's a great player. Okay, that'll do it. Uh, Steve Flink, I will speak to him late tomorrow night, which means at five a.m. Eastern time, the discussion will be released to the world. I can't wait for it. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time.